Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. I want to wish you all a very happy new year. I hope this new year proves to be one that brings with it a feeling of sanity and health and healing and is a year where you reach out for help if you need it and you reach out to help others when they need it and that others will reach out to you to offer you help so that you don't actually have to ask for it. I see that always as a gift to give somebody else. And I hope that it is one that is safe for you and for your families and for anyone who has dealt with a loss due to COVID or anything else. I hope again that this year brings with it more happiness, not as much sadness and worry as last year did for many, many people. And if you want to go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to keep our podcast going for this next year, we would appreciate any amount of support. It really is something that we rely on the listeners and supporters to keep going because I provide it as a public service. So go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a subscriber. And if you already are one, if you're already a supporter, and I wholeheartedly appreciate it, you can also move up a tier and go onto Patreon and it will guide you to let you know how to do that. For today, I want to be able to introduce my guest, Lola Binkard, who is going to be speaking with you today and also next week. Lola goes by she, her pronouns, is an author and actress, and she was born and raised fourth generation member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, in Salt Lake City, Utah. And this is not a show about how Mormonism is a cult. This is about Lola's experiences within it and the after effects from her experiences. Lola also has lived in Los Angeles now for 16 years. And she also wrote a horror anthology called The River God and Other Stories and a short story. 4-H. And they're both available on ebooks on Gumroad and Amazon. And when I asked her a little bit about how to describe why she was interested in coming on the show, she wrote something that is so well put together because she's a writer that I'm actually going to read what she wrote. So she writes in first person. So this is not me talking about me. This is Lola talking from her perspective. Lola says, My reasons for being on the podcast are talking about the power of boundaries and also shame. 
I wanted to be on this podcast to talk about the toxic effects of raising girls to believe blind obedience and total self-sacrifice, and that they are somehow feminine virtues, and how teaching girls to marry and defer to the right kind of man sets them up to be the victims of narcissists and high control groups, even if they leave the religion or the group itself. I also felt it was important to stop hiding the shame I felt for falling into the trap of emotional predators as my embarrassing secret, and that it was important to be honest about the fact that anyone can fall victim to manipulative people if they are taught their value or quote-unquote worthiness comes from somebody else. I want everyone to know that boundaries don't make you the bad guy. They shine a light on who the bad guys are. Hmm. That is really well written and well said. And here's Lola now. Welcome, Lola, to the show. I am very happy to be speaking with you and to be getting a sense from you about your insights from your upbringing to things that you've realized as an adult to also how you felt shaped by your experience and how much it also kind of influenced the decisions that you made in your life and the relationships you got in and how it all ties together. Because a lot of people will say to me, I had this experience when I was young. I didn't realize how much it had stayed with me until I saw that I was kind of recreating the same scene over and over or something similar or something in line with how I was raised to feel about myself. And also what kind of personalities I gravitated towards. And so that's when people start to see, you know, maybe they need to kind of address this. So it doesn't just keep recreating, again, kind of the same play. Just because you know the part doesn't mean you want to keep being in the same play. So go ahead and introduce yourself and then talk a little bit about what you want to talk about. My name is Lola. I grew up in Salt Lake City. I am on one side third generation Mormon and on the other side I think fourth generation or fifth depending on who you ask. I lived in LA for a long time and I uh, recently moved back to Salt Lake City. I'm wondering about when you said it depends on who you ask how many generations back you are. How come it depends on who you ask? Well it's um (laughs) It's really funny. There's um, a huge emphasis um, in um, LDS culture about your genealogy, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, keeping track of everybody. There's a huge emphasis on like doing sort of rites and rituals for generations that existed before the church was on the earth. So you want to keep track of all the great, great, greats to hopefully, you know, baptize them in at some point. And I feel like there's definitely um, (laughs) sort of a weird bragging culture of who who knows more about the family than aunt so-and-so. So So depending on who you ask, you'll hear, oh, people joined in the 1800s. Then someone will say, no, no, someone crossed the plains with blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Uh (laughs) So then I'm curious, of course, I'm, I'm curious what it's like to be back in Utah now, but 
I wonder also just growing up, what was your experience like? And, and knowing also that we're not saying that Mormonism is a, is a cult, we're talking about the ways that messages, I think, get conveyed to girls, boys, women, men in a lot of different organizations and the lasting power that they have. And for some people, I know they are Mormon and happily so. And others have noticed, just like with anything, that it actually kind of was strengthening to them in certain ways, but in other ways kind of took some of their power away or at least made them feel that they didn't have a voice or they didn't have power. And that's something that I've heard when people talk about the disparity for them when they think about their Mormon or other kind of religious upbringings. So I'm wondering what it was like for you growing up Mormon. Did you have a sense that what you were doing was different from other people? Yes and no. Uh, there was very much an emphasis on how it was a, a, a growing uh, religion, very much led to believe that we were sort of on par with the Catholics in terms of, of world influence. Mormonism is very, it, it's, it's a very American religion, and I think it's very individualistic, which means it's very possible to end up, like I did, in a pocket uh, of society, of just like, like a, a community bubble where some really toxic messages got uh, perpetuated, but I have a ton of friends who've had, you know, just really wonderful lives, and it's, it's very much street by street, almost. Salt Lake's pretty liberal, so I had a really unique perspective where I, I went to school with um, a largely Catholic population. I grew up on a side of town. It was a, a pretty even split between Mormons and Catholics. I got a pretty good, pretty good exposure to ways different people lived. Uh, but in terms of once I hit high school, once uh, like the, the, the people that I went to church with, the people that I was encouraged to associate with, it was very much a bubble, a to-do list of, of kind of unspoken things. Uh, mm -hmm. Raised to believe it was normal, but special. Okay. So I'm wondering also if there was a difference that you noticed or you were aware of at the time, or maybe just in retrospect, between being a girl growing up in it and being a boy. What were some of the differences potentially? Oh man, so, so many. Uh, I mean, it, it, first of all, I would say one of the biggest ones was it was really, really early on. I've always been a really emotional person. There's a reason I went to acting school. There are, are certain emotions that are just frowned upon. And one of them is anger for girls. Mm -hmm. There's certain types of people that do very well within the culture. If you have a certain type of personality, if you have certain ap like aptitudes, you'll fit in really well. You'll do, you'll do really well. But if you have issues with the kind of the unspoken rules, there's backlash. Like, for example, um, I was raised very firmly to believe that girls do not yell. Girls are not allowed to yell. I think I have been openly spoken to several times in my life for behavior, and it was always anger because someone made me mad. And not a, not like flipping a table or anything, but as in like, you know, a normal young young people things where you know a, a boy would tease me and I would say stop and they would tease me and I would shout to stop and then suddenly an adult would be present 
and I would be spoken to and told to apologize to this boy. And then the boy who was teasing you, was he spoken to as well? No. On my street in particular, a, a very specific individual, a young man who was kind of known for very violent pranks. He held my head underwater at a pool party. Terrifying. Nothing was done about it. He eventually did get spoken to, but it's because he threw a snowball with ice in it into the face of a girl who had braces and almost damaged her braces and her parents got angry. And I think he had to apologize to them, but I don't think she got an apology. Wow. What else could girls not do or what was the ideal about ways that girls were supposed to be? There was very much a sense in the community that a woman's role was essentially supportive. There's, and obviously it's the extent to which this is abused or kept in perspective depends on what your local church is. But men and boys from a really young age are considered to have the priesthood. They're considered to have a spiritual authority. So technically within the religion, as we were taught it, at the age of 12, young men had a level of spiritual authority that their mothers did not have. It wasn't that women weren't valued. It was sort of, there was, um, there was sort of a pedestal of, of you, you are a nurturer, you are a future wife, you are a helpmeet, your job is to learn how to be very feminine, find a man, and that was where your value came from. There are women I've talked to who were raised in very religious environments who talked about their mothers being passive aggressive and that it seemed to happen quite a lot. And that while their father could be aggressive, their mother could be passive aggressive. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, dealing with passive aggression is more difficult because there is this sort of manipulative piece to it. At the same time, for a lot of women, that's all you're left with. That's your only choice to get a message across. If you can't raise your voice and you can't be angry, but you still want to be able to say how you're really feeling and you can't be upfront about it. And so there is this interesting kind of morphing into needing to be manipulative in your way just because your other options have been taken away from you. And so I don't know if that's something that you saw. Oh, absolutely. Uh, on, on an ongoing basis, to the point where we had a joke in our among the kids that I grew up with that you knew that you were hated by <laughs> someone's mom if they were worried about you in a public kind of way. Make sure you're at church where everyone can hear and say, I'm worried about Lola such and such a thing was said. And I, I'm just so shocked that someone could say something like that. It, you know, it would be instead of like, listen, your kid needs to cool it. It was like, right. oh, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed where everyone can hear us. <laughs> okay. Being disappointed. Kids do talk uh, everywhere about how Finding out your parent is disappointed with you is much more kind of impactful, like a knife going through you more so than if they're angry. Okay, uh, that's so interesting. Okay, so you did experience that. 
the other thing that I was going to say is the other thing you would hear, especially as we got older and entered the dating pool, another common phrase was such a sweet spirit, the equivalent of the Southern bless her heart, which is what a bridge troll, what an awful person. Oh, what a, such a sweet spirit. Oh, she tries. Yeah. I, I had heard from someone who was also raised with that, not the such a sweet spirit, which I find very interesting to learn about, but just the, the bless his heart or bless her heart, that it is such a condemnation, but it comes, you know, out in this false sweetness. Hmm. And so, and acceptance. Okay. All right. And so what else? What did, what else did you notice just growing up that you wanted to highlight for us as it shaped you into the person that you were when you first got out, especially? Yes. As I mentioned, I think the moment that things started setting me up to fail (laughs) in a lot of ways was such an incredible pressure in my community to, as I said, to date, to marry, but also it's very Jane Austen-esque in its way where there were, for whatever reason, I don't know why, I don't know, someone would have to explain this to me and I don't know. But there were always, once I was old enough to start dating, there were way more girls in that pool than there were active guys. There were just more Mormon girls than boys at like the college or high school level. It was really brutal. It was incredibly competitive. Everyone was trying to find someone and get married, which kind of leads to this really insane thing where the young men of the group that I knew had their pick of the litter. And they, they became very overconfident about finding the right one. There was a lot of emphasis on someone you're getting ma- married. It's like, you're supposed to do it once. You're supposed to have lots of kids. And it very quickly became this perpetuation of these like childhood gender roles where m- the men were expected to be very successful, very charismatic, very confident. And if you were a girl and you were in a room where there, there were maybe like four or five girls for every guy and that guy can date whoever he wants, there's so much pressure to be the right kind of Mormon girl. And if you can't, if you're not that type, if you can't get that attention, then you basically are, you're toast. You're dead in the water. So it's just a constant passive aggressive feeding frenzy. And it felt more like a job interview than it did meeting people and finding out why you liked people. And in hindsight, it just made you want to gravitate towards the guys in the room that weren't weird. You were like the handsome guy in town and you were funny and you gave great talks in church and you had a great job. You wanted to be the girl that that guy looked at because that was your, your metric for success. You asked, jumping ahead to realizations and stuff, but I moved to LA. I went to acting school and I could not for the longest time figure out why I kept chasing the hottest guy in school, the, the lead singer, the, the what have you. And I had learned this piece of malware. I had swapped out the desirable characteristics where it wasn't about a return missionary. I didn't want to get married in a Mormon temple. I didn't want to do the, those kinds of things. But I had internalized the idea that I had to land the best guy and that was winning. Yeah. Just thinking about it, just uh, from teenage perspective, that's often the case that, and then I want you to be able to highlight then the distinction there 
That's often the case with with dating that you have the girls who are going to go after the most whatever fill in the blank kind of guy and guys also going after girls in that way. And word to the wise to girls who are younger who are listening to this, go for the nerds. They're just great. They're just <laughs> nice and smart and good. Just go for them. Anyway, give nerds a chance. I, if I went back in time and told myself when I was younger, find someone who's kind. Yeah. And so here we have this, like what you're describing is like every teen movie I'm picturing at a dance, all the girls waiting on Lynn, like lined up and the other guys lined up and only a couple people being picked. But that sounds like that was so much a part of your growing up experience. Absolutely. I had that so ingrained in me. It didn't help that I was in high school at a time when all those like all those late 90s teen movies where you know the nerdy girl gets the makeover and then everyone stops in the hallway and stares she's prom queen and whatever Uh every aspect of my life let's just internalize that all the john hughes moments of our media background right yes and so though i wonder though for your experience Was it that it was even more important because it wasn't just about dating. This was about who you were going to marry or someone who you were going to have children with, someone who was going to help you get to the kingdom of whatever. It wasn't just who's going to be a fun boyfriend for a little while. Oh, you were looking for the person that you were going to marry for time and all eternity. Your children were going to seal, be sealed to you forever. And you were essentially like acting out the plan that God wants for all people. Every religious community has like their urban legends where some people are like, I believe this. And then it's maybe that gains steam. Maybe it comes from the top, who knows? But there was a musical called Saturday's Warrior. And the premise of this musical is that before we all came to earth and we were all up in heaven waiting for our chance to come down and have our trial and find our future spouse that some people made promises to other people to find each other on earth. Your soulmate might have been someone who you knew before. So it could even transcend like the mortal veil. When it went well for people, it could be incredibly romantic. In a lot of ways, it was a very, I I mentioned like a Jane Austen type thing, but it was also a little bit like a 1950s kind of throwback kind of dating culture where if you, if there was a guy and he genuinely really loved a girl and they both were really happy about each other and their future and they both really wanted to have kids and he had a great job, like there were people who would meet someone and say, I think I want to marry you. And they would go on three dates and get engaged and get married and have kids and just be absolutely thrilled with a really wholesome love story. And and some other people thought they were having that and their partner was making a very, in hindsight, like mercenary decision of you're the hottest one, you're the richest one, you're related to this person that I want to impress. And then people would end up married and miserable. And I was going to actually ask about that because there are some cultures, some religions and cultures where people sometimes don't meet each other until their wedding day. And so you just wonder, for some people who you talk to who have been in those arranged marriages, their expectation was just that they were doing what was going to make their families happy and following their tradition. And they weren't really expecting a lot more from that relationship. So they weren't really very disappointed. 
other people did exactly what you're talking about, that they did this and then lived in misery. Often in those cultures and in those branches of religion where people are brought together, once you're married, you're supposed to stay married. Mm -hmm. And within that system too, the woman usually will lose her power and her voice. And then anything really can happen. Mm -hmm. And she's supposed to somehow be fine. So then here, I'm wondering about with all of the I mean, just the intensity of the culture and being so many generations back, having mm -hmm. this in your life. I know we're skipping over many years, but just to get to that place where you were saying, I don't know if this is me. I don't know what to do. Am I going to have to leave my family? I've seen what happens to people who leave. Am I ready to make this decision? I'm curious about that moment for you. When we decided to record this, I had this memory that was just the most profound thing of just things that I had buried. And I it, I know it can be cliche to talk about like the root of why and that exact moment X, Y, and Z happened. But I remember like it was yesterday, I, I had gone on this church trip. It was a girl's church trip. It's called the Young Women's Program. It's That's like the Bible study Sunday thing for girls. And we had gone on this retreat to this like gorgeous lake and we had set up our tents and there were canoes. And I am, I'm, I've been on the water since I was a kid. I know how to use a canoe. I was a Girl Scout and I, I wanted to, to take the canoe out. And the, the women said, no, we can't take the canoe out until the last day of camp when the men come up because the bishop, the head of the local congregation was going to come up because he has the priesthood and he was going to like preside over like a fireside meeting. Patriarch was going to arrive and, and we could all talk about what we learned on this trip in his presence. And I was told, no, you can't take the canoes out. We have to wait for the men to get here. And feeling, okay, that's stupid. Why does no one else think that's stupid? Come on now. And I remember really vividly that on the last day, it's so funny that I get emotional about this because it's, it's a canoe and I had one at home. It's not like I even really wanted to go out on that that particular day but I remember that the day that the bishop did show up he he just took the canoe out without asking if anybody wanted to go out with him and he was being very unsafe he was I don't even remember if he was wearing a life jacket he was like pretending to tip the boat over and I was appalled I was standing on the shore and I was appalled and I was trying to tell the young women's leader like he needs to stop doing that this could happen that could happen and being shushed and realizing that like that was going to be my life as we were going to wait around for men to tell us who we could be and maybe let us hang out with them and and we weren't even if like we were more qualified in some way like I know that's arrogant I was 13 but I was more qualified than this middle-aged man who was you know hoofing mm -hmm. around in a lake like the the awareness of how just frustrated and, and trying to argue about it. Like I looked around and everyone had backed away from me and realizing that I, I was just like marked as like a problem. The loneliness of that moment, I'm sure, was palpable. Mm -hmm. I've always been an outspoken person. I've always spoken my mind. And definitely in that, that environment that I talked about of how everyone's trying to get married and there are only so many people, I very quickly was singled out as someone who was 
um, A, assumed to be secretly gay, which was bad. I'm not, but it's obviously, there's nothing wrong with being gay. if If I was, I would be, but I wasn't. I was just very outspoken and it was used as a slur. And it was used as a slur by boys that I was supposed to want to impress. And also to say I'd heard recently just about the Mormon church starting to look at changing their stance on homosexuality. And that is, it's going to take a while, I'm sure. But I'm, I was very happy to hear that, that it's something they're starting to look at. There's definitely a lot of, a lot of young people who, who are gay, who have had a, a much worse time than I did. I, you know, I got ostracized by boys my own age for something they assumed I was, but I didn't have the added heartbreak of, you know, being the thing that I was told was wrong. I have friends who who grew up closeted, and I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Because what would happen if you were at the time, and again, I hope this changes and seems like there that's a work in progress right now, which is monumental. But what would happen to you if you were gay? What was the idea before when you were growing up in it? Worst case scenario, I know of people who were uh, kicked out of their homes as teenagers. I know that for the more loving families, a lot of them were encouraged to have therapy geared towards realigning that, so to speak. There was a camp, I believe it was called, I can't remember. It was like Evergreen. It was a tree name and it was a retreat that well-intended parents would send their kids on to encourage them not to act on incorrect, quote-unquote, incorrect impulses because you were supposed to like boys and boys were supposed to like girls and that sort of thing. So coming back to those pivotal moments where you said something's wrong here and why is it that I'm the only one seeing it, even though you probably weren't the only one seeing it, but you were the only one saying it. Yeah. But I think that being outspoken is a very lonely place to be when no one joins voices with you. It was awful. (laughs) It was absolutely the worst. When you grow up in a very communal environment, that trickles down from, it comes back from girls camp. It comes back from something that was said in school to church where you very quickly become kryptonite. You are, you're toxic. No one will date you. No one will invite you to things. And if they do, it's because everyone's invited or they're trying to sort you out. Yeah. And the flip side of that also was that if anybody paid any attention to me, even in a negative way, people would get so excited because they would say, maybe he has a crush on you. Like maybe this one (laughs) will Mm -hmm. like you or, oh, he's picking on you now, but when he realizes he has a crush on you, he's going to feel so stupid. Nobody ever, nobody made sure the girls were okay. Nobody made sure we felt, do you want to dance with that guy? Do you, well, what do you want for my friends who were closeted? Do you even like guys? It's fine if you don't. Like that was never, never a thing. And, and really the only way once in my experience, the only way that you were out of the, the corner, the blacklisted corner, was if for, you were saying like an 80s movie, if a good boy decided that they liked you, that could redeem you. That was how you could like have value again. Okay, so those experiences that you talk about, and I'm sure there was more than one of those moments, at some point, and I guess I'm curious at what age, 
you just said, okay, I'm done. It, it kind of started slow and it built up, but I would probably say the final straw for me was when I was in high school and a boy who I also went to church with called me a homophobic slur in our in a Bible study. But there's a class you take called seminary and it's basically like a weekday Bible class. I was arguing some feminist point. I don't, I'm, I was steamed about something. I usually was, but yeah, he said, what are you? And then he said something and the teacher laughed. The, the Sunday school teacher laughed. And I realized that this, that I was nothing. I was nothing to anyone in this room as I was. It was horrible. In any environment, when you have an adult present, whether it's religious, whether it's anything else, I mean, the kids talk about this actually who have different learning disabilities in schools and they make a mistake or something and the teacher also will laugh or put them down. There is something very significant about not having backup, about not having adults there who you can rely on to protect you. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're siding to a certain degree with the perpetrators. Yeah. And okay, so that was it for you. Yeah. Okay. From there, what happened? I, I mean, obviously, like, you know, it's it's not entirely as simple as anything else. I went to college for a few years. Um, I eventually realized that I wanted to move to LA and I wanted to leave just leave behind the system entirely. I I mean, Salt Lake is a, a fairly liberal city where I could go out and, and be there and just live my life, but I just needed to to get as far away from it all as possible for a while. And I, I, I really did think that I could just move to LA and none of my baggage would follow me in any way, shape or form. And I, I went to acting school. It was honestly the best three years of my life. I got so much accidental therapy out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly, yeah, just mostly learning how to get in touch with your emotions. I learned how to yell. I learned how to cry. I hadn't openly cried in front of other people in probably about five years at that point. So I had a a teacher in acting school who was like, Mm -hmm. learn how to cry. This is very bad for you. And it was wonderful. I had, it was the best three years of my life. Like everyone was very good and very kind. I did not quite realize at the time, the reason I was having such a great time dating and flirting with all these boys I went to school with is because they're all actors and they're all very charismatic and they're all trying to be the best. And I was strangely comfortable with that for some reason. And there were more girls than there were guys at that school. And that, that felt very normal to me. So I hear the intro into a story <laughs> because when you, with it set up like that, so here I was finding myself drawn. It is true. We gravitate towards what's familiar. And, and when something feels familiar, sometimes we don't step back and ask ourselves if it's right, if it's healthy. Mm-hmm. It just feels like you've come home. It feels like you also know that part, know that role. And also, if there was this value system around having the most charismatic person be interested in you, that's going to be ingrained. 
And until you are able to look at that objectively and say, like, is that a good idea or is it more of kind of a moth to the flame? Mm -hmm. And so then what happened? Yeah, I had a great time with it when I was at acting school. And, and also the fact that uh, I was doing very well for myself at acting school, where I was winning at the game that I had been losing at my whole life because the type of person that guys at acting school wanted like more aligned with who I was. So I was like, great, I'm crushing it. I am winning at, I don't know I'm playing this game, but I feel like I'm winning at something. Mm -hmm. And it, I was at school, it was a bubble. It was a bubble designed to be a very safe space. And when that bubble popped, it's been said so many times that the predators and the high control situations find you when you're at a crossroads. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I went from a scenario in, in which I was acting every day and I was doing fun stuff. And then I was out in the world and I was trying to be a professional actor and I could barely get any audition. I was a struggling actor. It was a thing. My community was gone because school was over and I, there's no official diagnosis here, but I fell in with one of the biggest sociopaths I've ever met. And he uh, messed with my head for the next like five to seven years, kind of a, a little social cult based around a particular uh, musician. Um, his name was Alex. It, it all happened with such, I mean, they always, it always starts in like such a good way. It's always, you know, you never think you're getting into something bad. I, I very deliberately, when I moved to LA, I told myself I wasn't going to be a cliche. I wasn't going to like fall in with like dangerous people or do like drugs or, you know, do anything crazy. And it was, I fell in instead with this music scene that really aligned with kind of the PG family friendly values that I'd been raised to believe were appropriate. There was a music genre in the 2000s called wizard rock. And it was a bunch of musicians and artists and creators who made things based around Harry Potter and like young adult books. And it was very wholesome. It was all ages. It would be shows at libraries, at community centers. And there was this particular individual who was the lead singer of a band. And man, he did a number on me. One more thing before you go. I am so happy that you're getting to hear my conversation with Lola. This is part one, again, of my two-part conversation. So be sure to tune in next week to hear the rest of my conversation with her. She said something, well, she said a lot of things, but she said something about how no one asked a girl what they wanted. She said she didn't hear the question, well, what do you want? And that's extremely powerful. And it's also, unfortunately, not a rarity in certain circles. You know, even, uh, I mean, just speaking personally, uh, being raised in a family unit, being the baby having uh, siblings who had strong opinions about things. And I came along and I think my folks wanted to have me be the one who went along with things. And which I, I understand, 
But I do remember hearing more than once, more than twice, more than three times. Oh, it's okay. Rachel will be fine with anything. That meant whatever we decided to do or outing we decided to go on or food we ordered or movie we decided to watch. Oh, it's okay. Rachel will be fine with anything. And I thought that that was actually true about me because sometimes when you are told something over and over again, you do believe actually that it's an accurate depiction of you, but it wasn't. I am actually very easygoing and flexible, but I had to learn to not be overly accommodating and overly silent when it came to decisions where I could have actually voiced my opinion and I could have actually had another person do what I wanted every once in a while. I thought that it was my role to keep everyone else happy. And in fact, I remember playing board games and other games with my family and knowing that I was going to forfeit the game. That even though I was the baby, sometimes I was about to win and I just thought it's not worth it because it's going to make other people potentially upset. And so I would somehow find a way to lose the game. And it actually didn't bother me at the time. I was happier to keep peace. And it's very interesting because when you learn those things about yourself, you think, okay, that's actually a strength to a certain degree that you're not so competitive that you need to win and you're going to get mad if you don't. But also, where do you get to learn how to handle if you win and other people might not like it and how to proceed along that route without feeling like somehow you've done something wrong by winning. I remember when I first came out of a long-term relationship where I didn't have a voice. I was then dating someone new who knew that it was a hot day and asked if I wanted some ice water and then asked me how many ice cubes I wanted in the water. And I was silent, not necessarily because I wasn't sure, but because I was amazed that you could be asked that question. I had no idea that was an option, that you got to choose that because I would be handed whatever I'd be handed and that was good enough. But I did need to ask the person I had been with how many ice cubes they wanted. And so it turns everything around when you realize suddenly that you've never been asked what you want. And maybe you do want some things and you have to learn how to want them. And you have to learn that it's okay to want them. And you have to learn how to ask for them. And also how to not either perceive yourself or accept being perceived as pushy or selfish or bossy if you have a want that's different than the other person's, or if someone might have to go out of their way in any way for you, which might even be as small as putting some ice cubes in your water. When you don't get a chance to engage with your sense of what you want, because it doesn't matter, then you do actually find yourself disconnected 
from yourself. And a lot of people have that kind of experience when they leave either restrictive environments or controlled environments or controlled relationships where they might say, I don't know how I feel. It doesn't register sometimes. I don't even think about it. I don't think about what I want, in part because I was never asked, but also in part because it didn't matter. And so it can be a very uncomfortable thing when you're in a relationship and you are asked what you want and you think, oh no, is this a trap? If I say what I want, am I going to be judged? If I say what I want, am I going to be seen as pushy or difficult? And so this message actually is for both people in a relationship like that. Whether it is within a religious environment or a love relationship, even a very good friendship, but a place where you have gotten into this kind of groove with somebody else, it is important in order for there to be a shift that both people shift. Let me tell you what I mean. If you notice that you always defer to the other person because it's easier to have them pick where they want to go. Because if you pick where you want to go and you end up going there and the other person isn't happy, will you just make yourself suffer? Will they make you suffer? Is there just too much of a risk? But I think also you want to notice how many times you waited to have this other person ask you, how about you? Or what do you think? And what do you want? And instead, there was deafening silence. But also, for the other person, I want you to challenge yourself. And I want you to notice that you always get what you want. And I want you to notice that you don't mind it. And I want you to notice that. It's not actually a benefit to the relationship, but just a benefit to you. Because while you might be happy, your relationship doesn't seem so. And that might be one of the reasons why. So think about this that when you are with somebody where you're in charge and they have to do what you want, they being human beings, are going to find ways to get messages across to you that they're not happy. And that might mean that they just are seething with resentment, smiling on the surface, but you can tell something's wrong inside. They're going to find ways to share their frustrations with you or kind of make mm, comments to you, kind of passive-aggressive comments and passive-aggressive maneuvers, which I actually don't judge. I think when people don't have actual power or think they don't have actual power in a relationship, all they're left with is being passively aggressive. And that's actually a step up, I think, from just being completely passive. Although ideally, it would be wonderful for you to actually be able to have a voice in that relationship so you don't have to be passively anything. But I think for the person who is in charge, know also 
that you want to ask yourself the following question. Do I know what my partner likes? I might have been with them for a long time. It could be my love partner. It could be my prayer partner. It could be people I just spend a lot of time with. Do I actually know them as well as they know me? They know the food I like. They know the movies I like to see. They know the books I've read. They know what political and social views I have. They know about my hobbies. They know about my strengths and the things that I consider to be my weaknesses. I've opened up to them and I've talked a lot about me. And then think, do I know any of these things or just a fraction of these things? about the person I'm with, and why is that? So, again, you both need to shift. The person who needs to be able to know that what they think and what they say matters will only be brave enough if you make space for it, and if you make it safe, and if you don't punish them for it, and if you don't label them for it. And I know also that you will only do this if it matters to you to do it. And if you're willing to forfeit being the only one who matters, I hope, I really hope that matters to you. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.